In this series of podcasts, we have been reviewing the components of MindRamp's MAPS method. The MAPS method is a blueprint for initiating and sustaining action, for turning your good intentions to protect your brain into concrete action plans that get you unstuck and moving in the right direction. Hi, this is Michael C. Patterson. I'm your host for the MindRamp podcasts. The MindRamp method uses a risk management approach. We enhance the health of our brains by identifying behavioral habits that put our brains at risk and then replacing them with more beneficial routines. In the first episodes of this series, we explored our motivation to keep our brains healthy and our minds sharp. And we use the concept of qualongevity as a beacon to guide us as our north star to help us navigate through these uncharted waters. We want to live long and live well. So qualongevity means longevity plus quality of life. In the next episodes, we explored the assessment process, the A in the MAPS method, M-A-P-S. And through the assessment process, we identify the risky habits that get in the way of our achieving qualongevity. What specific risk factors impede my ability to stay healthy and live a long life? What behavioral or thought habits undermine mine or your ability to achieve quality of life? We prioritize the unique behavior and thought patterns that we need to modify and eliminate. And we also prioritize protective behaviors and thought patterns that we need to adopt or strengthen. We're now into the planning phase of the MAPS method. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where good intentions are turned into action. In the planning stage, we develop specific strategies and tactics to break the constraints of bad habits and replace them with strong and lasting beneficial habits. In this episode, I'd like to explore the nature of habits and see if we can uncover some insights into how to break away from bad habits and establish good ones. So let's start by making clear that habits are very, very useful. I'm a big fan of habits. We wouldn't survive very long without being able to rely on a whole arsenal of useful and adaptive habits. Over a century ago, William James, the father of American psychology, devoted an entire chapter in his monumental book, The Principles of Psychology, to the topic of habits. The more of the details of daily life we can hand over to the effortless custody of automatism, the more our higher powers of mind will be set free for their proper work. James makes the point that the majority of our useful actions are run by habits and routines that we have forged through experience and practice. Habits allow us to act without having to think about every little detail of the activity. Through habits and routines, we learn to perform complex activities without needing to engage conscious attention and thought. As James observes, the more habits and routines of daily living we are able to develop, the more energy our brain has to devote itself to so-called higher pursuits like thinking, learning, or imagining, or the cultivation of contentment, compassion, and curiosity. I believe that habits and routines are an integral aspect of human creativity. The role of routine and creativity is, I believe, underappreciated. 
I see creativity as a dynamic interplay between routine and novelty. There are two aspects of this dynamic relationship that are important for this discussion. First, as William James points out, the details of our daily lives are run by habits and routines. So the more useful routines we have, the more skills we have at our disposal and and the greater our behavioral and cognitive flexibility. When we're faced with a problem, it's better to have two or three routines to choose from. So the more routines, the more options we have. And in this sense, creativity, our ability to behave flexibly and to make choices, is built on the accumulation of useful routines and habits. Second, again following James, as these routines become more automatic, they free up our minds to think beyond the immediate demands of daily existence. A liberated mind is free to expand, to be curious, to explore and learn. This is the ability to invent options for ourselves. So the more useful routines we have, the more flexibility we have. But invariably, some of our habits and routines prove to be less than adaptive and need to be replaced. Other habits that served us well at one point maybe have become stale or obsolete and need to be replaced. So if we have developed our creative thinking skills, we have the ability to invent new and improved routines. A flexible mind is well-equipped to discover new and innovative ways to solve problems. So this is the novelty side of the routine and novelty equation. Novelty becomes useful when it is converted into new and improved routines. Novelty invents options and then establishes them as ongoing routines. The architecture of longevity rests on a solid foundation of positive, healthy, adaptive habits and routines. Once that foundation of habits and routines is in place, we can turn to the construction of behavioral and mental systems that cultivate happiness. Constructing and maintaining this strong foundation follows the risk management approach, as we were saying. We build and deploy strong, useful habits and routines, and we replace habits and routines that are weak and counterproductive. We build a strong brain health foundation by replacing destructive and unproductive behaviors with positive, supportive, and life-affirming behaviors. We take firm control of the plasticity of our brains and ease it towards growth and development and away from disease, debility, and decline. There are two common ways to tackle this behavior change process. One approach, approach number one, is to focus on suppressing the bad behavior, the bad habits. Approach number two is to focus on establishing and reinforcing an alternative behavior that is healthy and beneficial, and then gradually allowing the new and improved habit to replace the old maladaptive habit. And there is good reason to believe that approach two is a lot more effective It all comes down to how the brain works. Behavior and thought occurs when specific spatiotemporal activations occur in the brain. One specific behavior or thought arises when 
one pattern and sequence of brain cell activations or connections uh, is activated. Another behavior arises when a different pattern and sequence is activated. The more you practice and repeat a specific behavior, the stronger and more sensitive that one specific neural pattern becomes. With practice, it becomes easier to activate the appropriate spatiotemporal arrangement, and the activation gradually becomes automatic. Think of rainwater collecting at the top of a mountain. As gravity draws the rain down the slope, the water naturally follows the path of least resistance, and gradually this path becomes deeper and wider and collects more and more of the rainwater, further etching this channel into the side of the mountain. And as this one channel grows and becomes deeper, other possible channels get weaker because they attract little flow. Well, it's the same kind of process with neural networks that control our behavior patterns. Once the neural channel is established and practiced through repetition, the metaphorical rainwater naturally flows into the established neuronal channel and away from other possible neuronal channels. The neural pathways that are repeatedly activated become stronger and more sensitive, while the underused neural pathways weaken and become harder to activate. So in this way, a particular behavior or thought pattern becomes almost fixed and automatic. So efforts to suppress this well-established habit are extremely difficult. It, it kicks into high gear automatically before we can even give it any conscious thought. This is why efforts to suppress a bad habit are so difficult and so prone to failure. Trying to suppress a well-established habit only reinforces it. When we say to ourselves, don't eat that donut, our brain only hears, eat donut. And the craving for that <laughs> the donut is activated. The better approach, therefore, is to establish and strengthen an alternative behavior or thought pattern, a positive one that can compete effectively with the troublesome one. You have this metaphorical pack of good wolves in your brain and a pack of bad wolves that compete with each other for dominance of your mind. You don't attack the bad wolves and try to drive them away. This only enrages them and makes them more destructive. Instead, you daily feed the good wolves, starve the bad wolves. You give your attention and energy to the good habit you want to cultivate and neglect the bad habit that you want to weaken. Gradually, the positive behavior, the constructive thought patterns become stronger and more, more automatic than the negative ones. The rainwater flows more naturally towards happiness, compassion, and respect, for example, uh, than towards fear, anger, and frustration. It's more effective to emphasize the positive, what you want to do, rather than the negative, what you want to stop doing, rather than Beat yourself up saying, oh, I've got to stop eating those chocolate donuts. You say, I'm a person who cares for myself. I'll snack on some lovely nuts and dried fruits. This establishes new neural pathways, new thought habits. You're establishing the habit of a positive rather than a negative self-image. You are the kind of person who makes healthy choices rather than the kind of person who constantly has to fight to overcome your bad habits. And, of course, as a person who makes healthy choices, you are in the habit of snacking on nutritional foods. You get into the habit of making healthy choices. At first, the establishment of the new habit takes conscious effort. 
It's like first learning to ride a bicycle or drive a car. You need to devote a lot of conscious attention and effort to learn the new set of skills. But the more you practice them, the easier and more automatic they become. So be patient with yourself. There will be a learning curve. You won't be perfect in the beginning. And that's fine. I mean, just stick with it and you will gradually master the new habit. In the skills section of the MAPS method, we talk more about motivation and the idea that our motivation runs along a continuum from extrinsic motivation on one end to intrinsic motivation on the other. Extrinsic motivation means the drive comes from outside. Someone else is telling you what to do or what you should be doing. Or you are doing something because you are telling yourself that it's a good thing to do. And as you move closer to the intrinsic side of the motivation continuum, you start doing the activity because you want to do it. It begins to feel good. It's beginning to be fulfilling and fun. Let's look at the advice of a couple of experts on behavior change. Charles Duhigg, in his book, The Power of Habit, suggests that all habits have the same three-part architecture. First, there is some kind of cue that triggers the habitual behavior. Second, there is the routine that is enacted in response to the cue. And finally, there is the reward that we receive in return for engaging in the routine. Often the cue triggers anticipation of a pleasurable reward, and we blindly follow the routine in order to receive the anticipated reward. Now, Duhigg suggests that the easiest way to change a habit is to focus exclusively on the routine, the middle part. That is, don't bother trying to alter the cue or the reward. Keep them, but focus on changing the response to the cue and find a new behavior that still results in a compelling reward. Duhigg uses a personal example to illustrate. Let's call it his 2 p.m. cookie habit. When Duhigg worked in an office setting, he invariably had a craving for a chocolate chip cookie as the clock approached the 2 o'clock hour. At 2 p.m. each day, he would take a break from work, go to the cafeteria, buy a cookie, and enjoy eating it while chatting with his buddies, who always congregated in the cafeteria for their afternoon break at the same time. So the cue in this example is the clock signaling the 2 o'clock hour. The routine was the visit to the cafeteria, the eating of the cookie, and the chatting with his friends. And the reward was the feeling of pleasure and renewal Duhigg felt at the end of his break. But the daily cookies were contributing to the growth of his belly. He was gaining weight and recognized the daily cookie routine was part of the problem. So in thinking about the cue, the routine, and the reward, Duhigg had a couple of useful revelations. He realized that the reward he felt at the end of his afternoon break was more complicated than simply enjoying the sugar rush from the cookie. He felt happy and renewed from his break for a number of reasons. First, he just needed a break from work. He needed a brain break to renew his mental energies. Second, and perhaps most important, he enjoyed the camaraderie of sitting around, shooting the breeze with his buddies. Neither of these two important rewards had anything to do with the cookie. The rest of the habit was fine. It was just the cookie part that was giving him trouble. 
he realized that he could replace the routine of eating a cookie with, say, eating an apple and still enjoy the rewards of a brain break and time spent with his buddies. So he kept the cue and the reward, but replaced the routine. I think Duhigg's three-stage model of habits is very useful, but I also think that focus on the initial cue can be an effective way to modify destructive routines. For example, the bowl of M&M candies sitting on your desk is a constant cue to grab a handful of the sugar pellets. You fall into a routine of eating a handful of M&Ms every 15 minutes or so because they're right there in front of you. The reward is the momentary rush of pleasure associated with the sweetness. Now, you could work to alter this routine part of the scenario, like Duhigg suggests. I mean, you might decide to eat just one M&M instead of a whole handful, or you might feed them to your dog, but neither of those seem terribly useful. A better approach is to just get rid of the cue. Get the temptation out of sight and out of mind. Dump the M&Ms in the garbage and put the bowl in the dishwasher. Now I'd like to move on to behavior change advice from Professor Ben Fletcher. Ben Fletcher is a professor at the University of Hertfordshire in England. He's an expert on behavior change and has developed an approach he calls Do Something Different. The title gives you a pretty good idea of his core idea. Behavior change is about behaving differently. If what you are doing now is not working, the best strategy is, according to Fletcher, to do something different. Duh. Sounds obvious. But of course, there's more to it. Fletcher makes a number of interesting points. One of them is that education doesn't work. Fletcher believes that thinking, education, and knowledge are ineffective behavior change techniques. They don't work. Yes, of course, it's useful for people to know what they should do and why it works, but this kind of knowledge fails to reliably convert into action. People know what they should do, but they just don't do it. Now, Fletcher's point is consistent with what we have found concerning brain health. At first, we at MindRamp believed that telling people about the science and the the wonderful advances uh, and the possibility of slowing the aging process would be sufficient to motivate everybody to make those changes. But that was naive. As Fletcher observes, knowing what to do isn't enough to get you to actually do it. So that's why we developed the MAPS method. We need to go through steps that move from good intentions, needing to turn them into action plans and action plans that are then implemented. A second point that Fletcher makes is that willpower doesn't work. Efforts to exercise willpower prove to be ineffective as well uh, because willpower is too weak and it's too easily depleted. Since willpower can be exhausted, it's an unreliable technique to affect regular behavior change. If you're confronted with a bad behavior, uh, when your willpower is depleted, you're going to fall right into doing that bad habit. So what does work? Fletcher stresses action. He believes that we can change our behaviors by taking small but significant actions. So here are some of his recommendations. 
When you break larger behavioral challenges into small-sized, bite-sized pieces, the challenge becomes more manageable. You take one step at a time. So converting to a brain-healthy diet, for example, sounds daunting. But eating an apple a day, on the other hand, sounds, well, it's doable. I could do that. And it moves you in the right direction. We refer to this as chunking. This is why we stress breaking large goals and objectives down into strategies and then further chunking your strategies into small, bite-sized tactics. Tactics are specific actions that are taken at a specific time in a specific place. Roger likes to talk about smidgens. A smidgen a day creates great change over time. A drop of water seems insignificant, but over time, the water accumulates, and before you know it, you've got a bucket full. You know, the, the old saying, a journey of 100 miles is made up of individual single steps taken one at a time, one after the other. So what else does Fletcher recommend? He says that a new and improved action must be established in order to break the power of an old habit and eventually replace it. I mean, this is what we were talking about earlier. He also says people don't respond well to being told not to do something. Again, we talked about this. Don't eat that donut is not a good approach. A better approach is to create an acceptable do. Do eat an apple when you want a snack. And Fletcher's third point is that interventions must, end quote, meet people where they are, end quote. Behavior change interventions can't be cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all approaches. They need to be tailored to each individual's needs and likes. They have to be something the individual will actually do. The intervention has to fulfill something the individual wants while quietly and unobtrusively providing them with what they need. So one of MindRamp's core principles is that brain health interventions must be customized and personalized. So now that you have some information about how habits work, you can develop a plan to start eliminating one of your bad habits, a, a habit that you know is undermining the long-term health of your brain. You might start with the cogwheels. What are some of your habits, your bad habits, concerning, say, physical exercise or sleep? Do you have a bad habit, a bad eating habit that you want to change? Once you have targeted a habit that you want to change, Figure out how you might replace that unhealthy routine with a healthy one. Let's go back to the M&M example. You could just throw the M&Ms away, as I suggested, or you could follow Duhigg's advice and alter the routine. For example, you could replace the candy with a bowl of organic nuts, some almonds or walnuts. Well, great. That's your strategy. Now... To really make it happen, you have to figure out your tactics and put them into action. Do you have any raw almonds in the house? No. Oh, okay. So, first tactic is to put almonds on your grocery list. A second tactic is to purchase almonds when you go shopping. After that, throw away the M&Ms and replace them with your almonds. Finally, cross M&Ms off your grocery list so you don't ever buy any more M&Ms. And there you go. You have a plan. You might decide that you want to take on a 
Online yoga classes, for example, that's a great strategy. Now get real and figure out the tactics that will actually make that happen. When will you do the search of online yoga classes and and find their class schedules? When are you going to sign up? When will you figure out how to access their feeds? What day of the week and what time uh, are you going to designate as your yoga time? It's probably a good idea to start out with simpler challenges. Work on a habit that you're confident you can change. It's always nice to have some early wins to build up your confidence as you learn the routines of behavior change. Gradually begin to tackle bigger challenges. As Roger would say, every smidgen counts. Every step you take in the right direction gets you closer to your goals. In the final episodes of the MAP series, we will examine a number of skills for sustainability. That's the S in MAPs. These are mental skills that will help you to follow through on your action plans. Remember, you can find out more about MindRamp at our website, www.mindramp.org. And if you need some special help, sign up for a consultation with me or Roger. 